Welcome to Alcohol Across America with your host, Dr. Brad Crever, along with a weekly panel of co-hosts. Our program examines the impact of beverage alcohol on public health and safety, the nation's economy, and American culture. Each week, we discuss current trends and issues. Now, here is your host, Dr. Brad Crever. Welcome to Alcohol Across America, a weekly examination of how alcohol beverages and the industry that produces, distributes, and sells or serves alcoholic beverages impact our lives, our communities, and our economy. This week is the first of a series of examinations of college student drinking. Uh, College drinking has been an issue forever, it seems, but it rose to a level of national prominence during the 1990s, almost 25 years ago. In 1994, in the Journal of the American Medical Association, researchers from the Harvard School of Public Health published the results of the first national survey on college student drinking, reporting that 44% of all college undergraduates could be classified as binge drinkers. And alarm bells rang again in 1997 when an MIT student, newly arrived on campus named Scott Kruger, died of alcohol poisoning after attending a party at the fraternity house that was his new residence. Scott Kruger's parents sued MIT, which resulted in a multi-million dollar settlement and forced MIT for the first time to make university housing available for its first year students. Today, we examine the most recent data on college student drinking and its consequences and the effect of alcohol upon the, the, the brains of, of young college students, and what's changed and what stayed the same since that Harvard study in 1994. My co-host today is Dr. William DeYoung, Professor of Community Health Sciences at the Boston University School of Public Health. Dr. DeYoung has devoted the past 30 years to developing, implementing, and evaluating programs and policies to reduce drunk driving, underage drinking, and the problems associated with college student drinking. Bill, welcome. Thank you very much, Brad. I'm pleased to be here. I guess I also want to say something by way of introduction. Um, In my experience, most college and university administrators will say that student Drinking is a big problem on their campus, but it's also my experience that very few of them are willing to invest the money that's needed to address it. Um, And this is frustrating because we've learned a lot about what works, um, but our progress really lags behind what I had hoped it to be when I started doing this work so many years ago. And why does that happen? Well, in part, it's because many people, including campus administrators, parents, uh, think that the problem is intractable, that nothing really can be done about it. Um, but it's also because a lot of people, and again, college administrators and parents, think that student drinking is just part of the college experience and it's not a big deal. But it is a big deal. And that's why I'm excited to have uh, our two guests join us. Um, we're going to be joined first by Dr. Scott Swartzwelder who's a professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at Duke University. Uh, He's widely known for his research on alcohol and drug abuse and its impact on adolescent development, as well as the growing fields of neurobiology and neuropsychology. He's also the author of several books for general readership, including Buzzed, The Straight Facts About the Most Used and Abused Drugs from Alcohol to Ecstasy, uh, 
Just Say No, and that's K-N-O-W, Just Say No, talking with kids about drugs and alcohol. And then what are they thinking? The straight facts about the risk-taking, social networking, still developing teen brain. Well, Scott, we're, we're very eager to have you tell us about the latest research on the impact of alcohol on learning and brain development in adolescents and young adults. Um, but I think a good place to start uh, would be to tell us about the normal course of brain development as young people do become of college age. And, and thank you so much for being here. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. Uh, I, I believe that's actually a very good place to start to talk about normal brain development because the brain is still developing, and, and quite importantly so, in those uh, college years and uh, actually on either side of the college years. Um, and particularly, the regions of the brain that are undergoing development at that time are those that have a lot to do with the kinds of functions, that is, neurological and psychological functions, that are absolutely critical for success in the adult world. So the frontal lobes of the brain, for example, uh, right behind your forehead and over top of your eyeballs, uh, are undergoing an incredible amount of sculpting into their final form at that time. And what's important about that is, is not only what the frontal lobes do, which is uh, give us the ability to con control our thinking, plan, execute planned behaviors, and engage in certain types of memory processing, but the frontal lobes actually act like a conductor for the actions of most of the rest of the brain. And so Anything that the frontal lobes touch, essentially, uh, is, uh, is going to have an impact on how, uh, on how the person develops, how their functions develop, and how adaptable they will be to the challenges of the adult world. So it's really that structure and other related structures that are developing most rapidly during that time, and they're of pivotal importance. So give us um, an idea of how the fact that this part of the brain is still developing uh, impacts the kinds of decisions that young people make, the kind of risks that they take? Uh, yes. Well, first of all, just the fact that those regions are developing uh, in one way means that we shouldn't expect a full uh, expression of adult, what we would consider adult behaviors at that age. That's not to excuse explicitly poor behavior, but it does give us a way of understanding that people in their late teens and early 20s they're not processing information in the way that they will be just a few years later in their late 20s. So in terms of their ability to inhibit uh, behaviors that could get them in trouble, it's a little harder for them to do that. They're more responsive to... Um, to the kinds of inputs that give them pleasure, and so they're, you know, they're more likely to pursue those kinds of things, even if it might cost them some. Um, and they are less capable of, of making and executing complex uh, plans and planning for the future. Now, I don't want to paint this with too broad a brush. There are certainly people at 20 years of, old, 20 years of age who are very capable in those areas. Of course, there are some people at 40 years of age that aren't, Right, so right. This, is, this is not a simple unifying thing, but that part of the brain, those parts of the brain are still developing, and those folks are are just not going to be as good at some of those things as as adults are. So that's a, that's I think the very first thing that that can uh, help to fuel a, a productive rather than destructive conversation about these issues. And what you've described is something that most young people don't know, they haven't heard about this, they really do think of themselves as 
adults when they're age 18, but it is more complicated than that. So what is the impact of alcohol on this stage of brain development? Boy, there are a lot of uh, there are a lot of potential impacts. Um, if if you're talking about the acute effects of alcohol, that is the effects of a you know a single dose, a single episode of drinking, in some ways the developing brain is more sensitive to the effects of alcohol, and in some ways it's less sensitive. For example, alcohol has a much more powerful effect on your brain's ability to record and store new information as memory in in the developing brain, in the adolescent brain, uh, than, uh, than in the adult. But on the other hand, adolescents are far less sensitive to the sedative effects of alcohol. So you've got an individual who can drink more before they get sleepy enough to stop drinking, but along the way they're impairing cognitive function more powerfully than would someone, you know, even in their late 20s or, or early 30s. So, so that's, there's a difference in terms of the acute effects, and I think that's a very important distinction, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's a set of sensitivity and insensitivity that you really don't want because it can put people at great risk. On the other hand, the long-term consequences of repeated drinking during that time can be, in part, that that developmental trajectory that is normal across those years from the late teens to the early 20s, as I said, it's very important. If you put alcohol into, that, into those circuits repeatedly across that time, you can alter the way those circuits are developing, potentially, so that the final expression from an anatomical and physiological standpoint of those circuits is not as it would normally have been. So this possibility of sort of nudging off or redirecting the pattern of, of neural development during that late stage with alcohol or any other traumatic input for that matter, um, you know, can have substantial consequences downstream. So... How do you talk to young people about this in a way that they can hear? Well, the, uh, having raised three adolescents, um, I can tell you that's not always easy. And, and it is an individual thing. So the first thing you have to understand as a parent when you're dealing with your, your adolescent child and talking about these issues is that your relationship is unique. And I mean unique, right, because um, it's singular, Right? No, every parent with each child has, has a distinct relationship. And so, you gotta, first of all, you've got to be wise enough to know what that relationship is like and not you know, go outside the boundaries of what's, you know, what's going to work and what's not. So the first advice I give to parents is know yourself and know your child. And if you know those things, then you can, you can begin to address things in a productive way. The second sort of cardinal rule for me that I found to be valuable was to do it in an authoritative but not an authoritarian way. It's a subtle but important distinction. You should know what you're talking about. You should be able to convey that clearly, but you're not just setting down rules. And that's right. very, very difficult because it's hard to get the emotion out of that discussion, but the better equipped you are with information, the more likely you are to have that kind of authoritative discussion. And in many cases, the conversation with a child can be a negotiation over the rules given the information that you're able to provide them. Well, that's absolutely right. I mean, the, yeah. the bottom line is that those kids are going to be out from under your roof uh, as soon as they walk out with the car keys, 
right, or walk out without the car keys. And so you're, the, the truth of the matter is you're not going to have the kind of control that you wish you could have as a parent. None of us ever feels comfortable in that way. And so the best thing to do is navigate that early with your kid, have the conversation, express, you know, express your concerns, give your opinions, have a dialogue about limits and safe behavior, and then understand that your child is then going to go on and make their own decisions. The hope is that they carry that information with them enough so that it's still with them, it's still present for them when they're making that pivotal decision about whether to take that drink or to get in that car with that person who took a drink. And that has a lot to do with how you have approached them from an early point and how you conduct that conversation. So one of the most important things I I think people should take away from this is that they may think that the issue of alcohol and brain development comes from long-term abusive drinking. But in fact, there can be immediate consequences because of the effect of alcohol on the brain. So even in in a single instance, there may be effects that increase the risk that young people are putting themselves at. Well, that's exactly right. And it gets back to what, what I said uh, off the bat, and that was that, you know, with, with adolescents and young adults, uh, you know, you get this odd combination of sensitivities where you're impairing cognitive function more, but you're uh, producing less sedation. So that in itself is a risk. But we also know that the adolescent brain, because of the way it's wired and is being wired, is also quite sensitive, more sensitive than the adult brain, really, to the effects of repeated alcohol exposure, even if it's not that extreme. And so Mm. that's another thing that most people don't know. It's actually new information. It's still emerging uh, data of how sensitive the adolescent brain is to repeated doses of alcohol, even not too many of them, and even not at too extreme a dose. And so wow. it's, really, it's really just in those ways a more, a more dangerous drug for an adolescent or a young adult than it is for, for someone slightly older. Even if that's a hard message to hear by adolescents, it's something they really need to know. Okay, very Scott, good. Brad, uh, I know you have some questions. I, I, yes, Scott, I wanted to ask you, you mentioned that uh, for the younger person, drinking impairs the ability to, to form memories, to store information. How long does that persist after the episode of drinking? If, if someone's partying on Saturday or Sunday, does that, that impediment to learning carry into the week? Uh, that's a really good question. Um, we, we, we don't know enough to be able to answer that uh, with absolute certainty now, but it's very safe to say that it persists beyond the drinking episode itself. And one reason for that is that when you drink enough alcohol to impair learning and memory, um, you have other effects of alcohol that, ha- that can affect learning and memory in the subsequent days. For example, if you drink that much alcohol, you're not going to sleep as well, okay? And we know for, for the next night, right, or maybe two And so you're going to lose certain patterns of sleep that are critical for memory encoding. And so you're going to have a downstream effect that lasts far after the effects of that dose of alcohol have worn off. And that's just one example. 
mm-hmm. hangover. Hangover, you know, you wake up the next day with a hangover, you're less likely to be able to remember what goes on because you're just miserable. So it's, it's, alcohol is a complicated drug that does a lot of things, and it does many of them more powerfully in the developing brain than the adult brain. Mm-hmm. Uh, This is so interesting, Scott. Thank you. After a short break, we'll resume our discussion with Dr. Scott Schwartzwelder, Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Duke University. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Responsible Retailing Forum is a leader in the industry, bringing together public and private stakeholders, regulatory and enforcement agencies, attorneys general, public health agencies and producers, and community leaders and researchers in order to identify and promulgate best practices for responsible retailing and engage the stakeholders in examinations of responsible retailing policies. For more information on RR Forum or its partners or how your community can get involved, please visit rrforum.org. It's time to take charge of your own career path. But how do you get started? First, tune in to The Career Confidant with Marie Zimanoff. Each show will feature national business leaders, tips and insight from Marie and her guests, career management tools, and a weekly career smart tip. She'll help you move forward, earn that promotion, get hired into the career you want, and brand yourself. The Career Confidant is broadcast live every Monday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Whether the market's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now. Toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Alcohol Across America. We'd love to hear from you with questions and comments about our program. Please send an email to crever at rrforum.org. That's K-R-E-V-O-R at rrforum.org. Now back to Alcohol Across America. Welcome back to Alcohol Across America. This is Brad Crever, your host, joined by my co-host, uh, Professor William DeYoung. And our topic today is college drinking. And we'll continue our discussion with Professor Scott Schwartzwelder of Duke University. Uh, Scott, you were telling us that uh, about some of the research that's been shown about the effect upon the uh, the developing brain. Uh, but you also are aware of some long-term research on the effect of college drinking. Could you share that with us as well? Yes. Well, one of the main areas of interest uh, these days is, is how the adolescent brain responds to repeated exposures to alcohol. So we know it's more responsive in some ways and less responsive in others to any given dose. But is it more vulnerable to long-term consequences 
if if someone drinks repeatedly during that time? And the answer is is absolutely yes, it is. Um, it depends on what you're measuring, of course, as as in any case. But uh, what we find is that when uh, when alcohol is uh, given during adolescence, there are changes in the way that brain finishes developing in some ways that make it appear that adolescent-type characteristics may be perpetuated into adulthood. Okay, so, so adolescents, uh, whether you're looking in animal models or in humans, they have distinctive patterns of, of behavior and distinctive uh, aspects of brain function that you can tell apart from adults. In some ways, those uh, exposure to alcohol during adolescence seems to uh, almost lock into place some of those adolescent characteristics. And now, w- whether or not that's sustained throughout the lifespan, we don't know. But we do know that, that, there is, that it does persist into adulthood longer than it would have normally, which whether, you know, what that means in terms of, you know, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, if, if, a, de- if a brain isn't developing along its normal course and it's retaining these immature characteristics for too long, that suggests that something is wrong. So that's one of the very recent sets of findings that I think is really important to people to understand that, um, that repeated exposure can change the way that brain is developing in some ways sustaining immature characteristics beyond the time that they would normally have been sustained. I think that's probably something to be avoided. Well, Scott, culturally, we've always sort of seen college drinking as something we grow out of as we get older and wiser, but you're suggesting we may not be able to grow out of it. Well, it might be. Uh, I mean, it, it could be that the uh, that those circuit changes help to sustain drinking in some individuals. Perhaps not everyone, but it might be that people that come into the college years with a predisposition toward alcohol abuse or alcohol addiction might have that predisposition enhanced by that uh, uh, exposure in that period of time. We don't have all the answers to those questions yet, but we do know that something is changing. And, you know, I think the reasonable position to take is that, uh, that this is a highly vulnerable period for long-term changes in response to alcohol, and we have to pay attention to that and urge caution with respect to how much and how often people drink during those years. Well, um, linking this to something that's more current in in, in our politics these days, uh, cutbacks in federal budgets, uh, how much more research needs to be done and and how well funded is this research uh, that's needed? Well, I have to say that the National Institute on Alcoholism and Alcohol Abuse has been pivotal in in providing funding uh, for this kind of work and, um, and has provided enough to get us going. Uh, and by us, I don't just mean me, I mean the community of alcohol researchers. However, uh, it is very, very difficult to, to get funding for research these days. The dollars are very tight. And uh, when we sit on review panels and look at grants, I mean, there's just not enough money to fund anywhere near the number of outstanding grants that we see. And so many of them go unfunded and the questions go unanswered. So on the one hand, the National Institutes on Health are, are doing their best, but we're really hamstrung by the lack of federal funding to address these questions. Mm-hmm. 
Bill has been very involved in working with college administrators on alcohol issues over his career. It's been, I think, the source of uh, his greatest frustrations. So, Bill, would you frame the question in terms of college administrators and the role of colleges and their policies in terms of underage drinking in college environments? Yeah, certainly. Um, Well, as I mentioned uh, in my introduction, um, I see awareness among college administrators that this is a major problem. Um, Many administrators will say it's the most serious social problem they face on campus and all the other things that they are concerned about, um, sexual assault, harassment, poor academic performance, people dropping out of school, all of those are made worse by the alcohol problem. And yet they're willing to invest a lot of money in addressing this problem. So I I think, Scott, what I want to ask you is, given the reality that um, budgets are tight, what are some of the things that you think uh, college and university administrators might need to do to make progress um, either on campus alone or working jointly with the community? Well, the good news about uh, the answer to your question is that uh, college administrators don't need federal dollars in order to implement reasonable policies on their campuses and, and provide education to their students about alcohol. In fact, that's the business they're in. So they're already doing it, and, and they have a lot of latitude in terms of the kinds of things that they can implement to try to improve uh, drinking uh, issues on their campus. I I advise college administrators a couple of things. First, establish a partnership with the students to address the problem because we know that not all students drink, right? In fact, fact, 20 to 25% of them don't drink at all, uh, if I've got the numbers correctly. And uh, and so you've already got a big cohort on any given campus that isn't drinking anyway. So establish a partnership. Get those students communicating with other students. um, And function in in a collaborative way. Now, that doesn't mean you have to let the students set the agenda all the time. I mean, I know there's a lot in the news these days about students, you know, sort of taking over and getting getting too much, you know, out of administrators and all that. But the truth of the matter is a college is a community, and a community needs to interact in a, in a partnering way rather than in, you know, an authoritarian way. And so that's the first thing. Establish it. Know your institution. Know the kinds of students you're bringing into your institution. What are their challenges? What are their strengths? And then brainstorm with them and with your colleagues in the academic side to create initiatives that are going to really have an impact on students. A lot of times academics are left out of the conversation and drinking is addressed in this dyad between the student and the college administrator or dean. But you've got a whole, your whole major employee group are these academic folks that can have great insight into the issues from any number of uh, standpoints. So make it a multifaceted approach, make it a partnership, and think creatively. You know, you, you, you picked up on an important point, which is that roughly 25% of college students do not drink at all. And then among those who do drink, who do make that choice, the vast majority of them do not drink heavily. Um, and yet the perception that many young people have as they enter college is that heavy drinking is the norm, and it creates 
feeling of pressure that they need to do this to fit in. And what are some of the ways that you think that that particular problem can be addressed? What is it that students need to know about college before they get there so that they're not misled into thinking this is what they need to do? Well, I think one of the most important things is exactly what you suggest, and that is understand what the actual norms are on that campus. Um, they might have heard from their friends, oh, college is great, everybody's drinking, it's a 24-hour-a-day party, and that sort of thing. But the truth of the matter is it's not. So there are simple ways to communicate that to students, and that can start as soon as the student is accepted to the college. They can be given information about this. So instead of shying away from the topic of alcohol on the campus, address it directly with the student. Let them know what, what the actual numbers are, that there are alcohol-free alternatives to have fun with, or that if people do drink, they don't have to drink to excess. So I think just communicating what actually happens at that, at that college is good. And the more of that that gets done student to student, the better. There are lots of apps emerging now that students can download onto their phone from a college that they've just been accepted to that puts them in touch with student groups, that puts them in touch with uh, academic counseling, so forth and so on, so that they can walk onto campus, unlike when you and I walked onto campus, you know, back in the day, and that's when you first started to learn anything about the school. These students can be given an immense amount of information and create a social network and a relationship with the administration long before they get to campus while they have time to think about how they want to approach their first days and weeks and months on campus. I think that transition is critical, and I think the schools can use technology to, to uh, help students approach that in a much more productive and much less frightening way, for parents too, by the way. Well, Absolutely. Scott, when I went, pardon me, Bill, when I went to college, um, I learned about my university at the Sherry Hours hosted by the faculty. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, Bill. Well, you don't see that so much anymore, <laughs> I have to say. Um, I wondered um, about the student-to-student -student communication. Um, one of the things that a lot of schools have experimented with is having um, peer leaders, peer counselors who uh, work with the students once they're on campus. Um, is that something else that that you've looked at, is, is that something that Duke is considering? Uh, Duke is, uh, is actually look, is, has been very uh, assertive about pursuing uh, new opportunities to communicate with students. Um, and I'm, I'm not actually certain what is being implemented now, but uh, Duke has created, for example, a series of first-year seminars, right, that students, first-year students have to take right, one of these seminars, and one of those seminars is on alcohol specifically, and that grew out of a course that I created, an ac a full academic course that I created, um, well, more than 20 years ago now and, and taught at Duke for many, many years, and the topic was alcohol, and we looked at that topic from from a social perspective, an historical perspective, a biological perspective, and it was extremely productive for students. It gave them a way to get information about alcohol that wasn't just being sort of preached to them through a pamphlet about why they shouldn't drink. It was actually digging into the information. And it turns out to have had a viral effect 
on the campus. Not, not that you know, we solve the drinking problem with this, but many, many students from those classes and from these freshman seminars that we have now that are now equipped with actually accurate information about alcohol rather than inaccurate information they get from the Internet or whoever, they can go out and, and they speak to their peers. You know, people come in and, you know, have conversations about alcohol. And you've got somebody in the room then. And I'm not talking about in the office with the faculty member or the classroom. I'm talking about the dorm room, which is where it counts. Now you've got somebody in the dorm room who actually knows something. And they can challenge a misperception. And that, I, I find that very exciting because it really is a, a community-level uh, approach to the problem, and it, and it has sort of a natural course. And uh, so I'm, I'm excited about that. I know in talking with um, colleagues who once worked at the University of Tennessee that they got heavily invested in training their resident assistants. Um, in addition to what you talked about, that they would also make a point of enforcing the rules. And there are a number of residents uh, life directors uh, across the country in various schools that are resistant to doing that because they think that unless the RAs operate as friends, that the students will never confide in them. And actually, um, at the University of Tennessee, what they found is that when the RAs did enforce the rules, um, it maintained better control over the environment, which everybody appreciated. Everybody appreciated that. And at the same time, the RAs found, no, their charges continued to come and talk to them. It was like they were in a big brother or big sister role, um, enforcing the rules, keeping the environment under control, um, dispelling myths, as you said, um, but still somebody they could talk to if they were having trouble. That doesn't surprise me at all. Because um, when you're a student coming into college for the first time, sure, you want friends, but you've got friends. You, What you also need is someone with a little bit of an authoritative perspective, somebody who knows something you don't, somebody who can provide some guidance. So I think training the RAs not only to enforce the rules, but arming those RAs with useful and effective information to convey to the students in their dorms is, is really important. And it makes perfect sense to me that those students would, would increase their, uh, their approaches to those RAs because they know, they come to believe that they can trust them to provide information. This is a lot about trust, whether it's a parent talking to a kid, an RA talking to a college student, or a counselor talking to somebody who's gotten in trouble. It's about trust, and, and trust really comes from effective conveyance of information. Mm -hmm. Well, that's very well put. So if you have parents communicating with their children in that authoritative way and the RAs and you're getting good information from school administration and uh, students are hearing a consistent, informative, helpful message, it can definitely make a difference. And we will continue our discussion of college drinking in just a few moments with Professor William DeYoung, my co-host, and Professor Scott Schwartzwelder of Duke University. America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Responsible Retailing Forum is a leader in the industry, bringing together public and private stakeholders, regulatory and enforcement agencies, attorneys general, 
public health agencies and producers, and community leaders and researchers in order to identify and promulgate best practices for responsible retailing and engage the stakeholders in examinations of responsible retailing policies. For more information on RR Forum or its partners, or how your community can get involved, please visit rrforum.org. You hear about it all the time. Compromises, destructive malware, major breaches. You can't turn on the news without hearing about the latest cyber event. Learn more about cybersecurity, how it has become one of the most significant threats to our national security, and the battle experts undergo every day on your behalf to protect you, your families, and your data. Task Force 7 Radio with host George Redis is the voice of cybersecurity around the world. Tune in live every Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. the market's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now, toll-free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Alcohol Across America. We'd love to hear from you with questions and comments about our program. Please send an email to crever at rrforum.org. That's K-R-E-V-O-R at rrforum.org. Now back to Alcohol Across America. Welcome back to Alcohol Across America. We're speaking today about college drinking with our co-host, Professor William DeYoung of Boston University and his guest, Professor Scott Schwartzwelder of Duke University. Bill, you want to pick up where we left off? Well, certainly. Um, I think a good starting point for us uh, at this juncture is to talk about some of the trends in heavy drinking, impaired driving among American college students. Um, and to get some sense of how things have changed. You mentioned the Harvard School of Public Health study back in 1994, which showed that 44% of college students could be considered binge drinkers. And there's a particular definition of that that we need to keep in mind. Um, There are variations on it, but one standard definition is that if somebody has five or more drinks on an occasion, um, that that represents binge drinking. Uh, Some controversy about that, but calling it binge drinking is a useful shorthand uh, in this kind of discussion. Um, So it was at 44% back in 1994, and it pretty much oscillated um, across the different studies that were done through the 90s and to the early 2000s, between 42 and, and 45 Uh, The most recent data that we have available from 2014 shows that it's dropped to 37%. That's still a very high number, but it does represent uh, progress over the the years. Uh, Even more dramatic is the the difference in uh, reported driving under the influence. Uh, Back in 2005, in the surveys that were done, um, just under 29% of college students 
ages 18 to 24, said that they had driven under the influence. And in 2014, that was down to 16.6%. So we do see um, some progress. Um, We certainly wish it was more. Uh, At the same time, um, while overall mortality has been going down uh, from alcohol-related injury deaths in this age group, while drunk driving has been going down, uh, we are seeing an uptick um, and have for many years in the number of alcohol poisonings, including those uh, that lead to death. Um, You mentioned Scott Kruger uh, back in 1997 at MIT. Um, despite all the publicity around that case and subsequent deaths, this continues to be a problem. So my question, you know, having presented that data, my question for Scott is what do you think accounts for the progress that has been made? My guess is that it has a lot to do with uh, the information just leaking out into the culture about um, uh, about some of the ways that alcohol is dangerous for young people. Um, You know, it's now been 20 years since we got the first inkling that the adolescent brain was uh, was developing uh, still and in ways that were important for for adult function. Now, 20 years might sound like a long time, but as you know very well, Bill, it sometimes takes a long time for information from the scientific literature to actually leak out and become a part of the society. But I do think we're experiencing that now. I also think that because of that and because of some of the research that that you and I and others have done that have shown these differential sensitivities to alcohol and uh, and so forth during adolescence, I believe that that has given uh, parents and teachers and educators of other type, coaches, clergy, you know, just more information to, to convey to uh, to young folks uh, in in that authoritative rather than authoritarian way, and so so I think it's been I think it's been education, I think it's been communication, and I think it's just been a, a slow but uh, but inexorable seepage of that uh, of that scientific data uh, out into the world in ways that uh, get it incorporated. I, I I do think that those those things are probably uh, you know at the core. One of the things that has surprised me, given the progress that's been made, is that uh, for a long time there was a group of college presidents, part of the so-called Amethyst Initiative, who were really calling for a re-examination of the age 21 drinking law, which establishes a minimum legal drinking age in all 50 states. And um, they really believed that the imposition of this law on a national scale, rather than allowing each state to make its own determination, was counterproductive, that it was actually making things worse. Um, I wonder what your perspective is on that, on that controversy, especially in light of the research that you do on brain development. Right. Well, interestingly enough, I was involved in that controversy. Um, I remember when that, that uh, first started, and uh, I... Uh, uh, honestly applauded the discussion because I uh, remember when I was turning 18, I'm a child of the 60s, 
Um, you know, there were issues in our society that, that made it seem just insane that, uh, that, that we could be asked, you know, to, to go fight in a war and all these other, you know, uh, reflectors of adulthood, but we couldn't drink, you know, we couldn't vote and so forth and so on. So I was very sympathetic to that. I thought we needed to revisit the question, not from a bio, not because of the biology. The biology would argue the other way. But I thought socially, we've got this new generation of, of young folks now, far more access to information. Technology has changed everything. And I thought it was good to revisit that discussion. That said, once we did revisit that discussion, it turns out there were lots of good reasons that people, you know, shouldn't drink until they're into their 20s. Now, the neurobiology of alcohol and developmental brain function, if anything, would argue to raise the drinking age, not to lower it. So that was my input. It says, listen, if you, if you want the science to drive the policy, then you will raise the drinking age to about 25, right? Well, you know, the folks that were putting forward the idea of lowering it didn't like that very much, but it was a potent point because right. by the, between the time I was 18 and these kids that are 18 now were 18, we knew a lot more about brain development, and so that really that really changed that discussion a lot. But I thought it's you know look you people at eighteen they feel like they're adults, okay, and in, and in lots of ways they are, and lots of them are already functioning as adults. You know people who have yep. gone to work early, gone into the military, things like that. You know. There are plenty of people at 18 who are extremely responsible. So I thought it was a good discussion to have, but I also think that the, the bottom line that comes down is that that probably would not be a good idea to lower the drinking age. Scott, I was a, a very interested bystander in those discussions. I was not one of the combatants. Uh, and my sense was that, in addition to the things that you were pointing out, a lot of college administrators felt that once – it was unlawful for anyone under the age of 21 to be drinking. It meant that the only policy a, co a college could have was if you're under 21, you can't drink. And that the college administrators themselves felt very um, hamstrung and, and incapable of, of acting in ways that tried to get more maturity and responsibility in drinking because they weren't allowed to countenance drinking in any form on their campus for anyone under the age of 21. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, in, in fact, the, the name of one of the organizations that came together to address this was actually Choose Responsibility. And that, that was a group that was, it was, they were actually advocating the, the lowering of the drinking age, but in the context of responsibility, and they facilitated the discussion in that framework, which, which I thought was a good thing. And I know one of the things that has troubled Bill uh, over the years is almost a sense that college administrators have capitulated to the problem of, of, of excessive drinking rather than to you know, take it head on and, and, and grapple with some potential remedies. Right. I mean, if you, if you put yourself in a position as a college administrator, you know, on, on any given weekend night, you know, you've got two-thirds to three-quarters of your student population breaking the law. Okay, that is not a comfortable position to be in. So that's why you, we, I think we, you know, we need creative approaches and cooperative approaches. Um, and enforcement has to be a part of that, but it can only be a part of it. And you had um, shared with us that you're a clinical psychologist as well as a researcher. And so putting on your clinician's hat, uh, we have 
all these instances of college students excessively drinking. Uh, it's affecting their brain, as you've explained. It's affecting their their performance in school. On a one-on-one therapeutic level, uh, how should we engage with such students? Well, the the, the first thing that, that that you have to understand is that alcohol drinking is not the only. Uh, problem that college students can have from a psychological standpoint. Those are the years during which a lot of mental disorders emerge as well. Uh, first experience of depression, uh, psychosis, you know, bipolar disorder, a lot of, for whatever reasons, probably brain development related. Um, that is a period of time during which students are vulnerable to, uh, to a number of uh, issues like that. And so the first question you have to ask when a student walks in with a drinking problem is, is there anything underneath this from a medical standpoint and a psychiatric standpoint that we need to address first? Okay. And how often do you see that? Um, I'm not sure what the numbers are. I don't actually work in the in the in the health side of of the university uh, with respect to students. But I, I mean, it's not it's not uncommon. Uh, and a lot of times, alcohol abuse is a is a symptom of uh, of an illness, right? Rather than the illness itself. Of course, it exacerbates the problem, right? Alcohol is bad for depression, even though people who are depressed tend to drink more alcohol, right? Uh, alcohol is very bad you know, for people starting to have, you know, this sort of cycling of bipolar disorder. Alcohol will make, alcohol drinking makes that worse, right? All, but it feels good in the moment to do even better, maybe. And so, so you really have to tease that apart, first of all. Beyond those issues, though, young people are, uh, like we all are, but perhaps more so during those years, highly sensitive and responsive to peer influences, Right? We know that in, in a general social situation. And uh, one of the most successful uh, clinics in, at, uh, at Duke for a long time has been, has been the Adolescent Substance Use Clinic, where a, where a group model of treatment is, has been implemented. And, and so using peers, you know, kids who are having the same struggles um, and creating a group alliance, using that as a kind of community to to, uh, to educate and to treat and to provide support for a student who's struggling with alcohol problems uh, can be very productive from a clinical mm-hmm. standpoint. Um, there's certainly a place for one-on-one counseling and, uh, um, and medical intervention, but the group framework is, can, I think, be very productive. And it doesn't ha- just have to be in a purely clinical setting. You can extrapolate that to the university as a whole. And that's what I was talking about before with courses, productive dialogue with administrators and faculty. So you get a sense of buy-in. You get a sense of connection. You get a sense of community, what, what would be called you know, population-level health promotion. And so those are really the sort of clinical directions that I think can give rise to even broader population health uh, advances in this way. For a number of years, Scott, I was involved in uh, smoking cessation uh, at a time when we had very little science behind it. But we saw that one of the reasons that people, uh, kids started smoking, uh, it wasn't so much because they wanted nicotine. What they were doing is learning to socialize. And the cigarette was a way of socializing in a very awkward you know, situation. And alcohol functions the same way. Uh, you spoke before about uh, even Individual episodes of of drinking for people who are not drinkers can have a serious effect, but that initial drinking is often just part of socialization. How does that factor into the college drinking experience? 
Oh, I think it's huge. I, I think um, I, I think that you know alcohol fuels so much of uh, college uh, socialization. It's almost an expectation that students have. I think that's part of what drives that expectation that that everybody drinks is that you know there's so much socializing going on, and it's just assumed that alcohol is the is the primary catalyst and fuel for that socializing. And it's not necessarily true, uh, and it's not necessary. Okay, just like just like cigarettes aren't necessary to fuel, you know, to fuel socializing at perhaps younger ages, alcohol is not necessary to fuel socializing uh, in in the college years either. And so, analogous to the smoking uh, cessation area, if you can supplant alcohol with some other activity that has, is less dangerous, um, then that would be a great way to do it, analogous to you know supplanting the smoking of combustible nicotine with something else people can do, you know whether you know nicotine patch you know that you 're still getting the drug, but you 're not getting the carcinogens and, or e cigarettes or whatever, but at a different set of topics but but you get my point right mm-hmm. if we If we can substitute something for the drinking that facilitates the socialization but but eliminates or reduces a lot of the danger. And we're going to be in a lot better shape on the college campus. Mm-hmm. It's amazing how much things have changed. And in a sense, things haven't changed very much at all. We'll be talking about these issues, I'm sure, another 25 years from now. Uh, but there have been remarkable uh, inroads. And, and Scott, you've just been wonderful explaining both the research and the challenges faced by the universities. Any final thought you want to share with us? Uh, just just to say, to, to keep the research going and keep that information flowing to the people who need it, and I think the progress will continue to be good. Scott, thank you so much. Our Alcohol Across America series will include two future podcasts on college student drinking when we explore what can be done to address alcohol problems on campus. In fact, there are colleges that have made tremendous progress, and it will be fascinating to learn how they've accomplished that. Our next broadcast will be Alcohol Flow Through Time, an historical perspective about alcohol regulation and its effect upon the community. We'll be joined by co-host Kathy Durbin and her guest Pam Erickson, a former alcohol regulator in Oregon, and Neil Isley, counsel for the National Alcohol Beverage Control Association. This is Brad Krever thanking you for joining us on Alcohol Across America. Thank you for joining us this week for Alcohol Across America. Please join Dr. Brad Krever and another weekly guest expert next Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until our next program, be safe and have a great week.